What is the fundamental problem of political life? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Scott Scheel. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Scott Scheel. Scott is Assistant Professor of Social Science at Arizona State University's College of Integrative Sciences and Arts. He is also a former research fellow with Duke University Center for the History of Political Economy and a former postdoctoral fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at George Mason University. His work has appeared in History of Political Economy, Journal of Economic Methodology, Journal of Institutional Economics, American Journal of Bioethics, and Episteme, among other outlets. Scott is co-editor of Research in the History of Economic Thought and Methodology and co-host of Smith and Mark's Walk into a Bar, a History of Economics podcast. He is also the author of F.A. Hayek and the Epistemology of Politics, The Curious Task of Economics. That book, and another one of his essays on COVID-19 and politicians during that crisis, will inform a lot of our conversation today. Scott? Welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks, Alex. It's a, a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, hello, Canada. <laughs> it's great to have you on. So, Scott, our question today is, what is the fundamental problem of political life? Ultimately, we're going to jump into many things, including discussions on the assumptions people have about certain capabilities of politicians and the capacity of planning and to solve problems and so on. But first, I, I want to start actually at a place where you, you start in your book, in, in the preface of, of, of your book. Uh, you mentioned how often baffled you are about how people seem to think of politicians and so-called experts of policy as sort of all-seeing omniscient experts. I, 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 I like that part, how you bang out in the book like that, because it, it, it's true. When you Even before you get into all the other stuff, when we stop and just think about that, it's almost like this. there's this underlying assumption that if we talk about the, the minister of immigration or, or the cabinet member responsible for X, Y, or Z, it's, it's almost as if there's this underlying assumption, hey, that guy or gal, they got this. They didn't know exactly what's going on. Yes. So, um, I mean, to address your question directly about the fundamental problem of political life, maybe I would answer that by sort of um, comparing it with uh, the answer that I think a lot of uh, political philosophers and political economists and um, uh, uh, political uh, thinkers would give. So I think that the answer that a lot of people would give to the question of what is the fundamental problem of political life is that our uh, policymakers, our politicians, the representatives that are charged with um, bringing about, um, you know, policy objectives, uh, may not be motivated to do the things that we want them to do. Right. So, so that is from for many people the fundamental problem of politics is that politicians can be greedy, they can be, uh, you know, venal, they can be focused on themselves at the expense of their constituents. Um, and I would never deny that that is a problem, but I would deny that it's the fundamental problem of politics. So I would answer the question, what is the fundamental problem of political life that uh, our policymakers are limited in the things that they can bring about? So yes, it's a problem that they may not be motivated to bring about the things that we want them to do, but ultimately that's not what prevents them from bringing about uh, outcomes that we desire. It's their limited knowledge and ability that prevents them from being able to bring about outcomes that we desire. So uh, the fundamental problem of political life is not that policymakers are misincented or uh, not properly motivated to pursue 
what we as constituents want them to pursue. It's that even if they were properly motivated, even if they were properly incented, in fact, we can imagine just policymakers that for whatever reason are maximally altruistic, right? Well, that doesn't ensure that they know that they possess the knowledge necessary to actually bring about outcomes that we as constituents uh, uh, demand or desire, right? So, I mean, there's really two problems. One, they may not know what we want. They might, they may be motivated to pursue what we want, but they may not know what we want. But then even if they do know what we want, they may not actually be able to bring about results consistent with those things that we want, right? So I argue in the book that that's the fundamental problem. And I argue moreover that there's a connection between um, what policymakers know and what they're motivated to do. Simply put, it's much easier to be constituent minded when you possess the knowledge that constituent mindedness requires, right? It's much easier to be altruistic when you know how to be altruistic. It's much more difficult to be altruistic when you're ignorant of what altruism requires. So that is a, is a, is a crucial part of my argument for um, what I call the logical priority of um, policymaker ignorance to policymaker incentives um, when we talk about this sort of fundamental problem of political life. So, so, so the idea there is like, and, and I'm glad you actually went right into that, because that is one of the central discussions in your book, of course, and I actually have a, have a quote here. So you say the problem of policymaker ignorance is logically prior to the problem that has traditionally, but erroneously been thought of as the primary problem of politics, namely the problem of policymaker incentives. And of course, you just trace that at a high level, which which is great. And, and I think that is very key. I want to drill into it a bit more because there is a lot of focus on this, isn't there? People always talk about getting that set of incentives just right. Or if there was only, you know, m more of like either a local incentive. So some people will have that discussion, right? That it's, it's oh, it's, you know, such and such decision or such and such responsibilities at this level of government. If only it was more local, then all the incentives kick into gear and you have people making decisions based off of, of whatever it is, you know, a smaller riding, a smaller territory, whatever the case may be. And in fact, what you're saying here is, although that might, might play a part in things, it, it's not at the the end of the day, the first thing we should be thinking about. It's not about just the incentive structure and getting that set of incentives just right. We also have to recognize the problem of policymaker ignorance. Yes, I think that's right. So, I mean, one way that I might put it is that, um, you know, most of our uh, political discussions, you know, and this is true, I think, whether it, uh, these political discussions are taking place in a, a, a graduate seminar, say in a political philosophy class, or whether they're taking place on MSNBC or Fox News, right? So many of our uh, of our political discussions run in terms of what policymakers ought to do, right? Policymakers right. ought to uh, expand uh, health insurance coverage. Policymakers ought to prevent or mitigate uh, the damages of climate change, right? Um, and my point is basically that before we get to the ought discussion, we need to get clear about the can. We need to get clear about what exactly policymakers can and cannot do, which is a function of what they know and do not know, uh, before we dig into this discussion about ought. Because um, I, I suspect that, uh, that few people would believe that there are obligations to pursue impossible policy ends, right? So I, I think that if you could convince someone 
for example, that um, policymakers do not possess the knowledge necessary to uh, address a particular social problem, whatever it might be, whether it's the environment or poverty or you know, pick your favorite social problem. If you could convince someone who is advocating for a policy that policymakers are so ignorant that if they were to try to implement that policy, it would only lead to disarray, right? It would only aggravate that problem or some other problem that we care about. I think most people would say, oh, no, I give, I, I don't, I don't, I no longer would argue that policymakers ought to pursue that goal. If it's, if it's the case, if it's the case that it's only going to lead to disaster, then that ought disappears, right? The ought no longer is uh, obligatory, right? Um, so my point is that we need to get clear on what uh, policymakers know enough to do and what uh, kinds of policy objectives they cannot uh, uh, affect um, because they are too ignorant to actually affect them um, you know, properly or the way that the, the policy is proposed. Um, and, and my thinking is that if we could get some empirical purchase on what policymakers can and cannot do, that discussion about what they ought to do, I'm not going to pretend that it would be a simple discussion, right? But it would, but it would, but it might be um, more fruitful, right? Because I think again, a lot of the um, discussions that we have, um, whether in a formal context or a, or a television punditry kind of context, uh, starts from the assumption that policymakers just know. You, they, that there's no ignorance problem for here, right? That um, I mean, look at the discussion that that is taking place in the United States and that has been taking place um, with respect to this thing called the Green New Deal. Um, and, and I could give you other examples too, but the question is, ought we to institute that Green New Deal? And no one seems to ask, what purpose is it meant to serve? And can it actually serve that purpose? And I think getting clear on that can question is an important piece of data for answering the ought question. Right. So let's get clear on on whether this policy or other policies can actually achieve their goals. And then we can have a, a more fruitful, perhaps more rational discussion about what we ought to do, you know, as a society or, or in our uh, respective locations. And if that's like the first thing we should be thinking of when we're approaching thinking about politics and political realities, where do you think, as you're walking people through this thought process, that they should put or leave, if you will, this this overall discussion about the incentive problem, right? Would you say that it's simply that we think of the policymaker ignorance problem first and, and the knowledge problem first, and then we get into the large problem incentives? Would you say that it, it's it's mostly the policymaker ignorance and knowledge problem, and then, you know, may, maybe the, the incentives conversation is important, but but overblown, just, just and as a, I know that's not the main thrust of our conversation today, but, but generally speaking, Speaking before we leave that point, when there's again there's so much literature and so much discussion, especially in classical liberal libertarian circles, etc., about this this problem of the policymaker incentives, public choice, and so on. Where, where should we put that? That's a great question. I'm really glad that you asked it. And of course, public choice is very relevant here. And part of what I'm doing with this project is to argue. I mean, the project is very methodological. And, and I should probably emphasize that. So I'm approaching these questions from the perspective of, you know, I should maybe back up and say, my background is really in philosophy of science and methodology more than anything. So most of my work has, has been in the philosophy of economics as a science, um, you know, addressing methodological concerns. 
Um, and primarily, um, I, I look at the Austrian school of economics. So I'm a philosopher of Austrian economics or a methodologist of the Austrian school. So when I look at political philosophy, I look at it through the lens of a methodologist. I look at it through the lens of a, of a, of a philosopher of science, basically. So when I, I've always been interested in political philosophy, but I didn't study political philosophy as a graduate student. I'm coming to it sort of as a, as a bit of a second career. But um, when I look at political philosophy, I, I wonder about the assumptions, right? So I, I approach it as a methodologist would. So I look at political philosophy and, and political inquiry more generally. And I ask, what are their assumptions and what is the value of these assumptions? And how do these, how do these assumptions uh, serve the purpose of the inquiry, right? So when I look at um, political philosophy and when I look at in particular political economy, right? I see these arguments um, and, you know, you, you mentioned them, the arguments that come from public choice and from uh, constitutional political economy and that um, are probably most closely associated with the economist uh, Nobel Prize winner James Buchanan. Um, I'm a great admirer of Buchanan. But when I look at Buchanan's work, I wonder why he started from this problem of policymaker incentives, right? And that is basically the, the starting point of much uh, public choice analysis. In fact, um, uh, the starting point of public choice is uh, often considered to be this uh, famous phrase of David Hume's, where he points out, I think it's in his essay of the independency of parliament, where he points out that uh, political writers have asserted it as a maxim that uh, you should treat policymakers, politicians as knaves, as people that are uh, self-interested and motivated entirely by their own concerns, right? And that is often pointed to as a sort of starting point for the, for the public choice tradition. And of course, um, you know, Buchanan said uh, he was interested in doing politics without romance. And I, I think that, uh, I think that's right. I think that is much of the Buchanan project. Um, but what I'm doing is removing the last vestige of romance from politics. And I think the last vestige that Buchanan left in was this notion that policymakers were epistemically special. Um, so I don't know how, I don't know that we, we really want to get into the weeds about this, but, you know, starting from the assumption that policymakers are self-motivated or self-interested, which is the starting point of public choice, right? We should right. Basi basically treat public, uh, we should basically treat politicians the same way we treat other actors in our economic models and theories as self-interested, et cetera. Um, starting from that, uh, point of view or the, starting from that assumption, presumes that policymakers know their interests and know how to realize goals um, in line with their interests. So, uh, so Buchanan also starts from an assumption about knowledge. He also starts from an assumption that the, that the policymakers are selfish or self-interested and that they know what their interests are and know how to pursue them effectively. And what I'm pointing out is that if you start by, with ignorance, um, as I mentioned earlier, the question of the altruisticness or constituent mindedness of a, of a policymaker is dependent on the knowledge that they have, right? It's a lot, it's a lot easier to be altruistic if you possess the knowledge necessary to be altruistic. If you don't possess that knowledge, then 
what, what, what choice do you have except to pursue something other than altruism, which might very well be your own selfish interests? So, um, so Buchanan has this implicit knowledge assumption that policymakers know what they're doing. And I'm trying to point out that um, whether policymakers are constituent-minded or self-interested is not some brute fact, right? It's not some fact that doesn't have a, a, a source, that's not determined by other considerations. It is, in fact, determined by other considerations. It's determined by the ignorance, the, the nature and extent of the policymaker's ignorance. So, um, so to go back to your original point, um, and to bring it sort of all back to this methodological point that I'm trying to make, basically what I'm arguing is that we should not start from motivational assumptions in political inquiry. We should start from epistemic assumptions. And those epistemic assumptions then determine the motivational facts, right? So if we can investigate policymaker knowledge and ignorance, and we can determine that, um, that with respect to some particular goal or with respect, you know, just in general, that policymakers are uh, irremediably ignorant, then we can infer from that that they're more likely to be self-interested. And that's when public choice comes in. Right. Right. So so I'm not nothing that I'm arguing undermines or um, runs against the uh, analyses of public choice or constitutional political economy. What I'm pointing out is that basically we should start from a different point and then the public choice considerations will come in later um, at, at another point in the analysis. So I'm a I'm a I'm a, uh, um, a believer or I believer I I. Um, uh, I'm, uh, you know, familiar with public choice economics, familiar with constitutional political economy. I have nothing to say necessarily against them, except that I think they start in the wrong point. Right. And I think that's actually like you mentioned before, you're not sure how far into the weeds we want to get. I, either way, I think we're, we're in a pile of weeds right now that I think if it is a pile of weeds, it's, it's very important. So I'm going to actually continue <laughs> a little bit further because maybe bring a bit of an example to it because you're absolutely right. I think this is very important to the way people think about this because uh, proponents of public choice or, or related sets of thinking or people that are re really into that stuff. And as you said, it has its place and it's very important. Often you hear something that will, will go along like this, right? Like, you know, in the private sector, there's a profit motive, products, et cetera. We, we all kind of know that discussion. We're familiar with it. Of course, a, a form of, this is one example, a form of political profit is, is the next election cycle, right? You're going to get reelected. Re so if, if your self-interest is to get yourself elected again, keep your job, keep your money, power, whatever enters into the equation, that's ultimately your self-interest. And then we go on and have a discussion from there. But but you're absolutely correct because later on in the conversation, people often say, well, well these guys are so self-interested. They'll just go to a riding and talk about whatever these people want to hear, get themselves elected, just deliver those policies. How can we make broader ideology work? How can we make classical liberal ideology work? How can we get to further goals? But you're absolutely right. It's what you just said makes me think to sort of reiterate and sort of spit back out at you, if you will, that you think at that point in time in the conversation, whoa, 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 we just skipped over a bunch of things here, right? The political profit of this person would be to be get reelected and go and tell these people what they want to hear, maybe deliver on this sort of pork, whatever it is. Do they know what that is? Do they right. even understand what's going on at the constituent level? All these sort of questions that are entering into, into play, even if we understand later on that they are fulfilling their self-interest, do they even know what to match with that from a knowledge perspective? It's a very interesting point. I think very important set of weeds to get into. <laughs> well, um, I, you know, I, 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 I agree. Um, I don't know that I have anything necessarily to, uh, to add to, uh, to what you just said, but, um, 
yeah, I think that um, you know the explanatory power of the assumption that policymakers are knaves, right, um, is non-existent if they don't know how to be knaves effectively. Right, right. So, so, so there is an epistemic assumption that Buchanan is making there, um, and and my point is basically, uh, you know, we can I think get some empirical grasp on what policymakers know with respect to particular policy objectives and what they know uh, in general, right? Um, and I think that once we have that empirical grasp. Um, it clarifies a lot of the subsequent discussion about, um, you know, how do we, what decisions will they ultimately make and what will be the consequences of their decisions, right? So um, I make this point, this is another, uh, I think, important point in the book, that um, we can only, uh, we are limited and the things that we can achieve through deliberate political action, right? Through political planning to achieve ends. We are limited by the knowledge and ignorance of the policymakers, right? They're the ones that have to design the policy. They're the ones that have to implement it. They're the ones that have to administer it such that it leads to particular results. And if they don't possess the knowledge necessary to do that, then one of two things will happen. Either the goal will not be realized, right? Uh, something else will happen. Or if the goal is to be realized, and this sort of is where Hayek kind of, um, I mean, he enters in, in many points in the book, but um, uh, if the knowledge required to realize a particular goal is lacking, then that goal can be realized only if spontaneous forces intervene, right? Only if something that escapes the can and capacity of policymakers um, can can make that uh, result um, come about if they're ignorant. So there's this sort of complementary relationship between policymaker knowledge and the need for spontaneous forces to um, to be involved in the realization of particular results. This idea of, as you said, spontaneous forces intervening. I just wanted to note in our conversation today, I was looking forward to noting that it's kind of fun because that sort of flips the script, doesn't it? This way of thinking that is to say that when people think of intervention, you think of there's a bunch of chaos on the market, if you will, and all that stuff going on in there and the government's going to intervene or even taking away this, the state sort of private market dynamic or paradigm, you sort of think of even like a, a parent sort of intervening in a situation. It's always this if you will, man of system or someone that's going to reach in and intervene. But as soon as I read that sentence, I wrote it down just to to talk with you about that today, because I really like that sort of flipped thinking, which is there's this planning, there's these people trying to achieve a policy, a goal over here, and then there's a chance for spontaneous forces to intervene. Well, I wish I could say that I deliberately used that intervention language in order to uh, bring to mind this kind of flipping of the script. But I have to confess that until you just mentioned it to me now, I don't think I, <laughs> I don't think I recognized that I was using, um, you know, spontaneous intervention or intervention of spontaneous forces in exactly that way. So, uh, you know, you might say that that was a spontaneous outcome of uh, of of writing the book. <laughs> I didn't plan it. I didn't plan it. It uh, it 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 uh, just is a happy coincidence. No, that's awesome. Um, and drilling a bit deeper into like the, the policymaker ignorance discussion, and you tell me if I'm reading too much into the, this specific sentence here. The problem of policymaker ignorance is the simple fact that the success of purposeful political action is necessarily limited by the nature and extent of policymakers' ignorance. We, we've talked about that. And then, but the sentence goes on, comma, and their capacities to learn. 
Yes. I think, again, that's a very interesting thing. This is another, you know, set of weeds, if you will, we should dive into, because I think, as you said, there's sort of this idea, especially when people think a certain way about the incentive discussion and all the other things we've already talked about, that it's almost as if this politician that we talk about in this model or even just in conversation is sort of this flat character that, you know, they come with a set of knowledge, they come with a set of self-interests, they, they try and follow that, they try to politically profiteer whatever they're doing. And, and that's kind of the story. Of course, we might think of them gaining knowledge in, in a certain way that, very simple example, maybe they find out something maybe new that their constituents want. So, so their, their, uh, their handlers tell them, oh, say that, and then they'll like you or something. So that's some new knowledge, quote unquote, they, they gain. But on the other hand, we, we don't, from that policy angle and that understanding, maybe whatever portfolio they're dealing with or whatever the case may be, this idea that they, quote unquote, have their own capacity to learn about these sorts of things, I think is an important part of the conversation too. Yes, I think it, 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 it's, it is very important to, um, to emphasize, uh, both for my argument in the book and, and more for just kind of thinking about these things, uh, you know, practically and philosophically, that uh, the knowledge that policymakers possess is not static. Right, um, they they can acquire new knowledge. Um, I I suppose maybe in principle they could uh, forget things that they that they knew in the past. Right. right. So so their 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 knowledge is uh, waxing and waning. And the question in any particular uh, policy context is, do they possess the knowledge necessary to realize the goal of the policy, or? Or and I'm not sure whether that's an or or an and. Um, or do they have the the ability to acquire that knowledge? Right. What are the possibilities for learning the missing knowledge? And so this might be. I think I, I address this most um, um, explicitly in chapter five of the book. So the question is um, sort of what are the mechanisms by which policymakers learn a what their constituents want, and B, how to realize those things. And I, I argue that, um, you know, in, uh, in, 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 in many Western democracies, I think almost certainly in the United States, um, the mechanisms by which policymakers are supposed to become informed of their constituents' demands and desires, et cetera, aren't very effective. Um, so, you know, that's, in principle, what what elections are supposed to do? Elections are supposed to communicate, among other things, they're supposed to communicate to uh, to policymakers what their constituents want from them. And of course, there are other mechanisms as well by which policymakers might get some grasp on those things. There are surveys. There are you know uh, um, you know there's the latest uh, Wall Street Journal NBC poll. There's you know there there are um, you know they engage with their constituents um, in person. And, and via um, you know various forms of communication, um, but the question is how well do those mechanisms you know express to policymakers your constituents want X Y and Z or I should say because this is a Canadian audience X Y and Z. Um, there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, so uh, and once we get you know once I, I mean so I, part of what I'm doing is encouraging um, political um, analysts to investigate that question about how well uh, electoral mechanisms and other mechanisms serve as epistemic devices, right? How well do they communicate the required knowledge between the constituent and the policymaker? But of course, there's also, an, uh, there, there are multiple elements of this communicative aspect. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, 
be all well and good if policymakers could acquire, um, you know, um, uh, definitive or, um, you know, at least decent knowledge about what their what their constituents want from them. But that still leaves the question of whether they know how to actually achieve those things um, unanswered, right? So ideally, I argue in chapter five of the book, we want epistemic mechanisms that communicate uh, from constituents to policymakers what the constituents want and also information that the policymakers need about actually realizing the relevant goals, right? How can, which policy means will realize the policy objectives, right? And, and that especially is uh, an element of, you know, um, democratic systems that it seems to be lacking, right? So, I mean, democratic systems might convey something about um, what the constituents want. They surely don't communicate very much to policymakers about how to realize those things. But there's also another learning component, which is that our uh, democratic mechanisms do not convey, uh, do not communicate from the policymaker to the constituent very well, right? So this is another problem. Uh, constituents don't seem to have a very good understanding of what their policymakers can do, right? They don't, they don't know, they don't understand the limits of policymaker knowledge and the limits that that those limits place on uh, policymakers' abilities to actually bring about particular results, right? So, so again, an ideal epistemic mechanism would not merely convey from constituents to policymakers what they desire and some information about how to realize those things. It would also convey from the policymakers to the constituents information about the epistemic capacities and limits of the policymakers so that constituents wouldn't demand things, right, in the first place that eclipsed what policymakers could bring about on the basis of their knowledge, right? So in kind of a perfect world, um, constituents would demand things that policymakers could learn about and realize, right? Right. But that's not the world in which we live. In the world in which we live, constituents demand things that go far uh, beyond what policymakers know how to achieve and uh, get extremely angry and disappointed when their, uh, their desired outcomes are not realized, right? And it's like, well, maybe you should stop demanding those really epistemically difficult, perhaps impossible things from policymakers. And I actually think that's an excellent place to take our break. So, so we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Scott Shield today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Rosa Pajarello, Sabine Elchidiak, and Travis Smith. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task.
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Scott Shield today. So, Scott, I think the first half was great. We really outlined what the main parts of our question were today and some of the answers to them. And we talked about a lot, policymaker ignorance, the epistemic problems related to that, how the incentive problem relates to that, and so on and so forth. Lots of great stuff in there. I want to, want to shift gears a little bit, but it's still, I think, a way of tying everything we talked about back together. Another interesting point you touch on in a couple areas, especially in the book, is that at the end of the day, there aren't just knowledge problems in, if you will, illiberal situations or illiberal societies or a place where, let's say, a government is controlling a certain market or, you know, there's a whole country where there's a dictatorship and they can't get some sort of social policy or economic policy, right? You you also say there, there's sort of a, a fatal conceit, if you will, in the idea uh, that those who favor liberalization or those who favor the idea of moving from illiberal policy frameworks to liberal policy frameworks, you know, closed markets, open markets, etc. There's almost like this fatal conceit as if to say, hey, like, this is how we're going to do it. Then it'll all work out because mar- markets and so on. If you're talking about liberalizing something or leaving stuff to the free market, all that's not to say that that might not work and that markets aren't you know, often the best answer to whatever problem we're trying to solve and nothing's perfect. But but I really liked that point, right? Because, you know, to get from point A to point B, let's say privatizing or handing over something to the market or opening up a market here or, or, or anything of the sort, there's sort of an assumption that we know how to get from A to B. That is even in like the more modern political economy sense, if we're talking about a country or or a bunch of experts getting together to figure out how to liberalize an economy and, you know, there may be a central bank has a role or whatever. And, and the the framework is relatively free, if you will, relatively liberal. Even then, the idea of what that framework looks like and what those institutions look like that should regulate that framework. There, there's sort of this idea a lot of people have when they talk about liberalization as if. You know, I'm not going to I don't want to straw man them too hard and say they just think it's going to be perfect. But perhaps there's a bit of an overconfidence and just how great that sort of liberalization journey can be. There's a lot of epistemic problems there, too. Yes. So uh, I think the kind of um, slogan that I use in the book is that um, uh, many, um, well, Austrian economists and um, liberals and libertarians um, like to emphasize the complexity of, you know, um, socialism of central planning of um, you know kind of centralized policy making and I think all of those um, all of those criticisms are, are, are valid um, but it's kind of a complexity for thee but not for me kind of um, viewpoint that a lot of these people hold they see the complexity of socialism they see the complexity of you know effective keynesian uh, macro demand management right the calculation they, problem the knowledge problem etc exactly but they don't see the complexity involved in liberalizing a society right given a, what what even you might start from a relatively liberal society and want to liberalize it further or you might be starting from an extremely illiberal society like i don't know um you know uh uh post-Soviet Eastern European sort of context uh, to a more liberal situation. But the point is that, you know, that is not necessarily simple, right? That doing that kind of, and I I think that we need to look no further than to the results of, you know, the Soviet Union and the the sort of attempts to uh, liberalize um, Eastern Europe and not just Eastern Europe, right? Like Iraq, I mean, all of these, uh, Afghanistan, we've done this kind of liberalizing thing uh, many places around the world. And I think it's clear, I 
it's clear to me that that can be done in better and worse ways, right? That can be done in ways that lead to the sort of outcomes that liberals um, associate with liberalism, or it can lead to the kind of horrible situations that we see in, in you know, it can lead to Putin, right? So um, the question is, do policymakers in the position of trying to liberalize a society, do they possess the knowledge necessary to ensure the sort of Hayekian liberal order, or are they so ignorant that they're going to end up with Putin? So, I mean, I'm basically making um, an argument that the socialist calculation, um, the the arguments that uh, Austrians make uh, in the socialist calculation debate have, there's a version that applies to them, basically, that, um, that, uh, you know, the, the argument that they make in the socialist calculation debate is, well, let's assume that the Politburo, that the central planners have only the proper motivations, the proper incentives. Do they possess the knowledge to actually make central planning work? And the argument that, you know, Hayek and Mises give is, well, no. And they offer good reasons for why that's the case. But I think that a, a precisely parallel argument can be um, presented to people who are defenders of 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 liberalization, right? Absolutely. Assume that policymakers are properly motivated, that they're incentivized to liberalize properly. Do they possess the knowledge necessary to do so effectively? And my point in the book is that at the very least, no one in the Austrian and liberal libertarian scholarly community has offered an argument um, that sort of exempts the liberal from that problem. And so part of what I'm doing here is pushing the Austrians and pushing other liberals to um, think more uh, seriously about the epistemic difficulties involved in liberalization. And I should mention one, one other thing I, I should I should mention is that I don't deny, in fact, I, the, the argument that I offer in chapter three of the book starts from the premise that if we can achieve a liberal order, that policymaking within that order is going to be relatively epistemically easy, right? If you just if you just think about it, it's it kind of just follows naturally because within a, a liberal order, policymakers are going to be charged with relatively few tasks and with relatively simple tasks, right? They're not going to be charged with um, central planning. They're not going to be charged with Keynesian macro demand management, right? Those are those are not sorts of things that are going to take place in like a Hayekian liberal utopia. Um, so I, I acknowledge that if we can achieve that world, policymaking will be epistemically relatively easy in that world. It's a completely different question whether we can move from this world to that world, right? right. So part of the p- point that I'm trying to make is that basically all policymaking, and this I, I think this is true whether we're talking about writing a new constitution or whether we're... Uh, we're talking about, you know, living in an existing constitutional environment and making new legislative policies. All policymaking is an attempt to get from here to there. It's an attempt to get from point A to point B. And we can always ask, regardless of what point A is and regardless of what point B is, regardless of whether we're moving from a liberal situation to a less liberal situation or vice versa, we can always ask whether policymakers um, possess a roadmap to get from A to B and a functioning vehicle to get from A to B, right? Um, do they do, do they know how to get there and do they know how to apply the means um, uh, effectively to, to actually get there? So, you know, I'm just pointing out that that problem is a problem also for liberals. And I say this as someone who is, um, uh, I don't know whether I, I, I go back and forth on uh, how I describe myself. I, I 
described myself as a libertarian for many years, then I described myself as a classical liberal for for a long time, and I think anymore I'm I'm a, a, a policy skeptic, which is the which is the view that I kind of defend in the in the book, which is that um, you know if you don't possess. Uh, if you don't possess a good argument or evidence that a particular policy should can be realized, you should be skeptical about that. And so I'm I'm my kind of mature considered view is that no one's given me an argument that we can actually liberalize effectively. And I would love to see that argument. Um, but I'm until I see it, I'm going to remain uh, slightly skeptical, even though in my heart of hearts, I would love to uh, create that Hayekian liberal topia. Oh, right. I mean, I think this is an excellent and very important point, because as you said, like there's sort of like this this asymmetric application of this rigorous critique, which is to echo what you were saying, absolutely warranted if someone's going to come to us in this conversation and say, hey, guess what, everybody, I'm going to set up this bureau and regulate these markets over here in this economy. And we know all the arguments we can go to and all the things we could say. And so do many other people that like, as you said, to talk about the economic calculation problem and the knowledge problems we've been talking about. And basically, you know, for lack of a better term, destroy at least theoretically what someone's proposing and running a top down economy. But on the other hand, like you said, one needs to only look at history and some of the attempts of either flying a certain economist out to places to advise other people or policymaking experts, whether it's Latin America, parts of Eastern Europe, that, uh, of course, again, not to straw man the discussion, I'm not saying everyone thought, oh, that'll work out perfectly, but sure, there's certainly course. way less scrutiny applied to that, right? Now, now we're being a little more, at least in some circles, people are being a little more lenient about these are attempts. We're trying to gradually make this work. You know, these people are going to help this area of the world liberalize again a lot of this kind of stuff happened in latin america and then it becomes you know should we be applying the same critiques that we are applying to quote-unquote other folks people that want to talk about a command economy let's say with the same rigor well then absolutely based on what we're saying here i would agree with you 100 that that kind of skepticism and criticism should be applied to these sorts of folks even if we're talking about liberalization it deserves that scrutiny. Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, you know, you mentioned the Latin American context. I, uh, I will say that I, I have long wished that uh, uh, as a Hayek scholar, as someone who admired, uh, admires Hayek tremendously, that he had never gone to Chile. And I will uh, say the same thing about uh, Milton Friedman. Um, in my mind, they should have uh, responded to those invitations in the way that uh, I think my book implies, which is to say, we are not in a position. We are not in a position to um, suggest how Chilean economic policy should be run. Um, so I think even uh, even liberal economists like Hayek and Friedman and uh, the rest of the Chicago boys get um, oh they get kind of shaded right by um, by the um, the invitation to come, you know, come help us, come help us solve our, our economic malaise. And of course, by doing so, they um, associated themselves with one of the worst uh, human beings of the, the 20th century. So I think it's um, very regretful um, that, uh, that that happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that speaks for itself. So I'm just going to shift our gears a little bit here um, before we jump into some COVID COVID nineteen stuff. But before we do, just a little bit of a digression, if you will. You know, we, we mentioned Mises and Hayek on our little journey today. Before I jump into a couple more specific questions, and again, I know this would be an episode unto itself. So you're definitely welcome to come back if you want to do that. But perhaps this will serve as the quick teaser for this. Would you mind roughly outlining at at a high level why the Austrian school of economics, particularly, is so important to to our conversation today in this topic? 
in general, maybe just by perhaps noting like, you know, what thinkers like Ludwig von Mises and, and Hayek at least started off. And in some cases, Mises did that and Hayek continued that that that's kind of underlying a lot of what what your work is doing and what you think other work should be based on. Again, high, high level stuff. We don't need to get too detailed on that because I know that's a long conversation. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so. I mean, and there, I think there are a couple of ways to answer it, right? So I, um, I mean, I could say, well, I'm a scholar of the Austrian school. And so uh, when it came time for me to write a book, this was just the most natural way to approach it. But I think that's, um, that's not a very informative response. Um, I think that as a historical matter, right? So basically what I argue in the book is that this, um, this way of arguing, and that's really what I'm defending, right? I'm, I'm defending a way of approaching um, political issues uh, uh, with um, a focus on the epistemics in front of the incentive problems. That way of arguing, I argue in the book, is how Mises and Hayek argued in the socialist calculation debate, right? So they started from the same basic assumptions that I'm arguing should be should be the standard assumptions in political inquiry. They started from the assumption that policymakers, that incentives and motivations were not the relevant issue, that knowledge, whether uh, the, the central planners possessed the knowledge necessary to centrally plan effectively, that was the central question. And so basically what I'm arguing in the book, um, one way of putting it would be that uh, everybody should adopt the Austrian method. Um, the Austrian method of starting with epistemics first and placing um, incentive and motivational questions second is the proper way to address political uh, inquiry, the, 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 the proper way to begin answering questions about um, what we should do politically. So uh, that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to have to draw the same the same conclusions that Mises and Hayek did. Um, but I do think that uh, and I try to make the case in the book that, you know, regardless of where you start on the political spectrum, right, whether regardless of whether you're on the far left, the far right or somewhere in the middle, um, this question of whether policymakers can actually do the things that you want them to do should be important to you. Right. I mean, um, regardless of whether you want a. Uh, uh, you know, centrally planned utopia or a Hayekian utopia, um, the question of whether we can actually realize that seems to be relevant to um, your defense of it, right? So, um, so, th so that's, um, that's part of what I'm doing is trying to encourage uh, everybody. Like I said earlier, it's primarily a methodological work. And I'm, and I'm really arguing that everyone should be Austrians um, methodologically when it comes to a political inquiry. It just occurred to me to ask you, to, um, as I was preparing for this episode, that you know there are some discussions happening in many circles and even outside of eco economist circles, historians, whatever the case may be. A lot in the actual tech circles, which I'm quite familiar with personally, you know, surrounding mega-powered computers, big data, and so on. There's a lot of discussion, um, especially with with tech leaders and people like in Silicon Valley and things like that. That the the sort of era we live in today, more than ever is one where if, again, if planning is possible and if a sort of up-to-the-minute information that you need to make decisions at sort of a higher level, more more of a planning sort of situation is possible, if that is possible, now is definitely the, the time where we can do that, right? Where like you can log into a database in real time and see data changing in real time, th things like that. Now, I'll just say, like, I'm not, I'm not personally convinced of this argument for a variety of reasons, but I want to hear why, if, if you think there's any credence to that. And of course, if not, wh why not? I'm sure you've heard these kind of things before, right? This is sort of the, where we're entering maybe quantum computing in the next, like, how many, ever many decades. Like, we're in a serious area of information. 
uh, and and the ability to process that. I'll just I mean I'll just fall back on what I'm I'm sure is among your reasons for rejecting that argument, which is the 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 Hayekian um, argument. I mean Hayek addressed this a long time ago, long before we had high powered computers. So um, anyone who is making that right now that argument right now and thinks that it um, undermines the Hayekian perspective needs to go back and read the use of knowledge in society because Hayek says there explicitly right if the problem was just a matter of gathering data it wouldn't be a problem we can we can do that we have scientists we could put together a scientific board and uh, we could gather all the data we want and because those scientists are knowledgeable about general rules and theories and things like that they could basically uh, predict outcomes and we could plan effectively but that's not what determines the success of a plan. That's not what determines the success of a policy, or at least not, not all of what determines the success of a policy. There is this other kind of knowledge, which is knowledge of what Hayek calls particular circumstances of time and place, right? So that's the kind of knowledge, um, I was actually just talking about this in my class last evening, um, and I'll use the example that I gave there. So imagine that you're the, uh, the manager of a coffee shop you know, down the street from me here, and uh, there's certain knowledge that you're gonna possess as the manager of that coffee shop that, well, one, you may not even know that you really possess it. It might be tacit knowledge, but two, even if you sort of recognize that you possess it, it's not going to be easily expressible to a central planning board, right? It's not going to be the kind of knowledge that you can easily convey to a central planning board. So we're thinking here of knowledge of the sort of, you know, the manager knows which of her employees are reliable and how reliable they are. She knows um, which of her machines are reliable, which of her machines tend to break down more, more uh, frequently than others. She also knows who to call to have those machines fixed when they break down, right? And as Hayek says in The Use of Knowledge in Society, it's this kind of knowledge that, this, that the success of a political plan hinges on. It's not the scientific knowledge. It's not the knowledge of general rules. It's the knowledge of particular circumstances of time and place. And, you know, we can imagine a central plan that if it doesn't incorporate the coffee shop manager's knowledge about which of her employees are reliable, which of her machines are reliable, who to call when the machines break down, that plan is going to run into problems when the employee fails to show up for work, when the machine breaks down, when et cetera, et cetera, right? So, um, so I think that's how I would uh, address your question is that if it just came down to data, not a problem, but it doesn't just come down to data. There's all of this other kind of knowledge that can't be, that isn't data as such, right? It's not statistics. It's not, it's not even the kind of knowledge that it might be easily uh, communicated. And as I said earlier, it might just be tacit knowledge. It might not be knowledge that the coffee shop manager can, can pull up when she's asked, you know, who's your best, uh, uh, espresso machine um, uh, repair person. You know, she she may she may not have that knowledge at hand. She might only be able to pull it up in the context of that kind of a problem, right? So, um, I think um, that those sorts of arguments sound convincing until you think about them for a little bit. Until you, th you think through of yourself as perhaps a person that needs to deal with a very specific, you know, intricate or even just like nuanced problem uh, or all the small considerations, at least that can come into play when knowing who to call for that espresso machine yeah. uh, repair, whatever the case may be. You know, that's an excellent point. I've been teasing throughout the whole episode. I want to apply a lot of our discussion to to the pandemic, the COVID nineteen situation. And one thing I like about your your aforementioned uh, article that you've written, which is that if there was a clear case where a politician's interest, largely speaking, 
would be directly in line with a constituent's interests, or at least where, where you and I can make the strong case that a politician's interest is, is, if not completely, pretty much darn in line with everyone else's. It's it's this kind of crisis, right? Um, right. But uh, of course, as you outlined, this, this isn't necessarily perhaps the problem we should be focusing on, right? Perhaps the problem we should be focusing on is that these politicians are dealing with tons of expertise and information that can be made available to them. That's not really, really a barrier. But there, there seems to be this problem right now that we need to think of when we're criticizing a certain policy or certain decision that probably goes something more along the lines of, well, do these people have the actual knowledge and understanding of what information to pick from, how to synthesize it, you know, understanding the economic impacts and weighing that against sort of the epidemiological models, what experts to listen to. I'm throwing a lot of things out there, sort of shotgun, but but that's at a highest level what I grab from your writing on this topic, that again, we're dealing with this sort of knowledge discussion and the limits of someone's knowledge and their ability to apply that knowledge again. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's been a real, I mean, this whole... Um Obviously, I'm not alone. This has been an interesting experience, I think, for everyone, right? But, um, but uh, my book came out on February 20th of last year. And uh, of course, the pandemic was declared on what, the 15th, the 14th. Um, I know here in Arizona, I think we were locked down on the, the 21st. Um, and it's been a very surreal experience to sort of observe what I take to be a case study in this argument that I've uh, that I've offered about policymaker ignorance sort of play itself out over the course of the last year. So um, I think kind of the main upshot of that article that that you mentioned that's coming out in a, a Cosmos and Taxes uh, special issue on the pandemic. Um, like you said, I think that it's it's plainly obvious or mostly obvious that this is a real case in which um, the question of there being an inconsistency between policymakers' motives and constituents' motives just just doesn't really apply. Like no one constituent or policymaker wanted to suffer the effects of the pandemic or the economic effects of the pandemic, uh, the lockdown and everything that followed from it. Um, Both policymakers and constituents were motivated to uh, minimize human suffering as much as possible. But that's an incredibly difficult thing, right? And I think I, I think we we know, and I think it's fairly well documented, at the beginning of the pandemic, policymakers didn't have any idea what was really going on or how to properly approach um, either the disease or their policy responses to the disease. Um, and so part of what I argue in the book is that when policymakers are ignorant, um, but yet they're also still worried about constituents. What you observe, what you tend to observe is a lot of play acting. You tend to observe a lot of pretending to care about constituents. And I think that that's what we've observed a fair amount of. I don't want to, I don't want to castigate all policymakers, but of course, um, we're all familiar by now with the, uh, the phenomena of, uh, of presidents and prime ministers and premiers and governors uh, giving you know daily COVID updates to the to the breathless media, um, and if you follow my argument, um, the way to interpret that is that that's all a charade. That's all a that's all an attempt to convince constituents that they actually have the problem at hand, right? That they that they that they know everything that they need to know that they're no we're we're going to solve this, right? So it's an it's like an advertising. It's like those those um those news conferences are like commercials for the um um uh knowledge and care of the relevant policymaker and I think that if you sort of take my 
um, perspective, you might step back and say, eh, is this sincere or is this, uh, is this just the latest attempt to get me to think, to get me to vote for politician X? And um, I, I, I think that the answer is fairly obvious. Yes, for sure. And, and another thing that I like that you noted is that, you know, and as I sort of noted before, too, is that obviously getting an expert or a set of expertise or a set of knowledge or a model or whatever the case may be in front of a politician, especially in this time, that's not the challenge politicians are having, right? It's it's, yeah. not, only, it's not only understanding one set of knowledge, maybe it's an economic set of knowledge or an epidemiological set of knowledge on the one hand, it's also the ability to have them play off each other and synthesize them. But and another thing, too. Is that as as you noted, like policy experts, quote unquote, are extremely knowledgeable in their respective fields, of course, but but they tend to have a lot of no- knowledge based on things, of course, in their specific area, based on sort of this all things being equal, ceteris paribus situation happening in other areas. That is to say, an epidemiologist usually isn't looking at a situation um, theoretically where they say, okay, you know, here's a virus spreading, et cetera, et cetera. And all this other stuff that's happening in the economy, supply shocks, demand shocks, things moving around. So they'll be looking and running their models and running their set of knowledge based on exactly what they are supposed to be specializing in epidemiology. One, on the one hand, that, that one thing. Thing. Same thing with economists on the other hand. So so that was, was something I found very interesting, too, to think about, is that if you have the expert in the room, their expertise is going to be based on their given set of knowledge, but also a particular way of thinking through their problem based on that set of knowledge. Perhaps not the rest of the world being on fire and changing their circumstances in real time, yes. right? Yes. I'm, I'm very happy that you brought the conversation back to this because I should have, I should have um, developed the point when you mentioned it earlier. Um, so uh, I argue in this paper in Cosmos and Taxes, and, and I also um, just published a couple of weeks ago a, a short op-ed in um, the American Institute for Economic Research on their on their website, um, uh, uh, co-authored piece with my um, co-author Parker Crutchfield, who um, I'm developing some of this um, some of the underlying philosophical and psychological material that goes into this this project I'm I'm, I'm doing with Parker, um, and we argue both in the Cosmos and Taxes piece and the AIER piece that basically, you know, if you think about it, the, um, the structure of the sciences doesn't map on to the structure of the problems that we confront in the world, right? Um, there are more problems than there are sciences. Um, and, and moreover, the, the individual sciences don't communicate very well, right? So um, I think that the two probably most important sciences that um, have been uh, pertinent to this crisis are, of course, epidemiology or public health or medical research, you know, medical science, but then also economics, or if you like, we just say social science, because I think sociology is also relevant here. I think political science is also relevant here. I think um, certainly human psychology and not just, not just, not just humans, like individual psychology, psychiatry. Um, social psychology. Yes. I mean, yes. Yes. So I, I mean, it's actually probably easier to uh, try to define which sciences are not relevant to COVID than it is to try to get clear about the sciences that are. But the, the point is that, um, you know, policymakers are going to be getting input from all of these different, um, different scientists, different experts. And in the, in the final analysis, there's no one to help them balance these considerations. There's no one to help them trade off economic considerations against uh, epidemiological considerations. In the final analysis, it's down to them <laughs> to basically make the decision whether to, um, you know, 
choose a policy that uh, emphasizes economic considerations over public health considerations, or choose a policy that emphasizes public health considerations over social considerations. It's their choice. There's no expert to help them about those trade-offs. So, um, right. So, I mean, I think that uh, we tend to think about experts as playing this role of filling the gaps of policymakers' knowledge. And I think, again, if you think about it, that's certainly they're there to help, right? I mean, that is, I would assume, the purpose of having experts in the policymaking process is to help. To inform the process. Yes, right. But that doesn't mean that it's sufficient. It, mm-hmm. might, be, it might be necessary, but that doesn't mean at all that it's sufficient to ensure that, you know, uh, policy X to address uh, the COVID crisis is going to um, lead to the results that the, that the experts predict for it, right? Um, so... I, I, I think that uh, to take us back to sort of the beginning, I think that um, a fair amount of skepticism about um, policymakers is due. And, you know, this is my prejudice, but I would say that if you're not skeptical of policymakers after the last year, then I, I don't know what's gonna, what could possibly make you skeptical of policymakers. <laughs> right. That's a good point. Hopefully not COVID 2021, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope it doesn't take another pandemic to get people to understand that policymakers don't always know what they're doing. Right. And I actually think that's an excellent place for us to segue right, right into our wrap up. Our, our time has pretty much wound down here, Scott. So, so let me say, We've, we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring the conversation full circle, put a finer point on our exploration of the question. You, you told me you're a listener of the podcast, so you know what's coming next. So let me officially ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what the fundamental problem of political life is? If you wanted someone to remember one or two things from this conversation, the so what question, what would those be? I would say that uh, rather than starting from starting your political discussions or your political thinking, right? Rather than starting your um, political thought process in terms of oughts, you should start in terms of cans and and cannots, right? You should um, be worried about what policymakers can and cannot do, and only then should you worry about the question of what they ought to do. That's uh, that comes after we've um, addressed the can and cannot question. And um, I actually have, uh, <laughs> I actually have uh, some papers that I'm developing that argues that that's basically a, a, a general principle about all human action, not just in policymaking context, but in all contexts, that um, where uh, you can't do something, there is no ought. Scott Scheel, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks, Alex. It's been a real pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>